As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we're joined by Ian Shea. Ian is a Berkeley, Columbia uh, executive MBA. Ian is a BC EMBA class of 2008, and he is currently the founder and CEO of I Am Human. Welcome to the podcast, Ian. Thank you so much, Sean. Excited to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on because it is Mental Health Awareness Month. And first off, you know, we love to hear about your origin story. So I was born in 1973 in Rye, New York. I'm the eldest of five. Grew up going to Catholic school. Then I went to our local public school, which is Rye High School. And from there, I got a scholarship with the Rotary that was a youth exchange program at the time. Rotary would give um, scholarships to people interested in going abroad. Mm -hmm. And how I got introduced to that was through a dear friend who I was a fellow Eagle Scout with growing up. He was a year ahead of me. And he got a scholarship to go to Sweden. And the way the Rotary worked at that time is if you showed an interest in wanting to go abroad, you would apply. And if you got accepted, they could send you pretty much anywhere. You didn't really have a choice. Each year, they would feature seven different countries. And so my year, I think it was Russia, it was Denmark, it was, there were some South American countries and the lottery for me was to Denmark. So for me, that was definitely a formative experience. It was there for a whole year. And most seniors, you're applying to college and applying to college, I really didn't get into too many colleges, got rejected from a fair amount. And I always had my sights set on Cornell. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I applied to Cornell and I didn't get in. Somewhat of an interesting story in that went to Denmark, having really not been accepted at any college, but didn't matter because I was excited about that experience. And I probably wrote Cornell, no joke, 15, 20, maybe 30 postcards, just filling them in on my experience and how it was going and how I still remained extremely interested in going the upcoming year. And I kept getting rejections, well, deferrals, rejections. I'm not sure exactly what they were, but I'll never forget this. With the Rotary, you have to go for a whole year. It was a 365-day commitment. Couldn't leave, so to say. I mean, you could, but they didn't encourage that. And towards the end of that, my year there was June. I was going home in July. You know, we had a going away party because I was in the equivalent of senior year over there. And they had both a senior year graduation party and as well as a kind of an Ian going away party. Called my mom and dad just to check in how are things were going when they were going to pick me up at the airport. I said, we have got a, got a little letter here. Do you want to, do you want us to open it up? And I said, yeah, I'll open it up. And little, little letters are not, that's not a good sign. And I remember just looking out over the backyard and there were tons of kegs and the parties were all set up. So in my head, I was just like, Lisa, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that later. I've got a good party weekend coming up ahead of me. And it turns out they said, congratulations, you, you know, accepted class of 96. And it was kind of not only was my formative years, a real start to, to becoming who I am today, both Denmark and Cornell were as well. What'd you study at Cornell? Cornell, I studied economics and French. And the reason for the French piece was when I was over in Denmark, Denmark is, it's a beautiful language, but I didn't find it as elegant as French. Yeah. I was like, the French would be really interesting to learn. So minored in French and uh, majored in, in econ. What'd you do with econ afterwards? Ever since I was little, I always kind of had started small companies, nothing major, but I was just interested in seeing what I could create on my own. Yeah. And I enjoyed that. I kind of enjoyed that Rubik's Cube. Instead of getting quote unquote normal jobs, like a camp counselor, I would be doing other things. And when I 
went through college, one of my thoughts was it would be great to start my own business at time X in the future. And so econ at that point was just a logical business framework, at least in my mind, to prepare me. And then upon graduation, I had a lot of friends going into investment banking. And so from my perspective, investment banking was a good fundamental skill set just to understand the flows of equity and debt into a business, how you analyze business, just getting an understanding of businesses, if you will. And so upon graduation, I went into investment banking, did work with Prudential Securities, doing a lot of IPO and secondary work in the tech world. This was out of Manhattan as I was starting to get exposure to the West Coast. And then I did two years in M&A and restructuring just to get a little bit more of a quant background because I knew once I left banking, that was probably going to be it for me. So I wanted to get as much skills as I could. And then from banking, what happened was I was analyzing companies and taking a look at companies and understanding kind of like, okay, the metrics, but I really didn't know, like, actually, how do you take a company and grow at 10% year over year? Or how do you reduce OPEX or like gross margin? Like, what does that mean? And so from banking, I wanted to go into a company to understand the plumbing, actually all the analytics that I was doing, what did that mean practically speaking? So I went from um, in New York in investment banking to San Francisco and I worked in Replay TV. And I was at Replay TV, which at the time was a competitor to TiVo. It was one of the Silicon Valley darlings, if you will, of 2000, very well funded. We had filed to go public and then as we, some may know, the crash, which occurred in the spring of 2000, the tech market just kind of, the carpet fell. It was ripped out from underneath it. And for me, because I was in banking, I actually didn't get laid off because a lot of that skill set could have been, was put right to work with from a restructuring perspective. Because I was pretty much the only one internally who, who knew that. Right. You were there for quite a while. I so. was there for I was there for eight years. And at that time, it felt like being a dinosaur because a lot of people just went from company to company every two years. But for me, it was that the business, Replay TV went from, we went through a restructuring, which I was able to shepherd that you know, with my boss at the time. And then we got bought, got bought by a publicly traded company. And I was able to take on the same role at that publicly traded company. And then the publicly traded company, which was interesting at the time, was this it was a we were a graphics chips manufacturer. The company was called Sonic Blue. And Sonic Blue was in the transition of going from a graphics chips manufacturer into what was loosely defined as a digital home entertainment company. And the first kind of piece they bought of that strategy was Replay TV. They also had Rio, which at the time was an MP3 player, it was a predecessor yeah, I remember to what we, we may know as, yeah, as Apple's product. And there were a whole bunch of other products. So they were transitioning, making that transition over graphic chips in a digital, call it digital media. And they had quite an arsenal of cash with which to do that. But what happened was as they were making the transitions from chips into digital media, there was a revenue called gap until the new business took off. And the asset that they had was in a Taiwanese semiconductor company. That asset at the time was worth a billion. So the public markets were fine with that transition because it was well-funded. But as cyclical as the chips industry is, we started to go in, the market started to go into kind of a downslide. And so that billion went to 700 million, went to 500 million, went to 300 million. And then as it went down to 200 million, a lot of the covenants kicked in. And I was, again, able to kind of use my corp dev hat and we went through a whole nother restructuring, went into bankruptcy. Yeah, I ran the bankruptcy. And then we came out and got bought by a private equity shop. And I was eventually promoted to running Replay TV out of that and sold it to DirecTV. So back to kind of my original 
goal was to learn the plumbing, if you will, yeah. of the business. Or if you think of think of your learnings as a clock, you know, I was able to go around the whole clock, get some proficiency. I had some great guidance along the way. I had some great mentors. And all along the way, mentors would drop me into particular positions because they said, if you want to go where you say you want to go, this is all valuable skill sets. You don't have to be an expert in all these areas, but it'll, you need to know just enough, right? So when you're eventually you're managing or running a company, but you have better purview on the kind of the holistic elements of the company. That's amazing. I have to ask, after getting such a wealth of experience, you know, what drove you to, to get an MBA? That was a great question. The NBA, there was a period and replay TV that was kind of had plateaued off. This was after the restructuring and before I got promoted to running it and selling it. Yeah. And I was kind of in a what I will call just a more quiet zone for my own growth, for my own development, such that I, I wanted to go look for something else, but I didn't want to just stay idle. And I had always had my eye on an MBA, but I knew I was never going to go back for two years because I appreciated all the learnings I was getting on the job. And at that time, I remember Berkeley and Columbia, I believe started that the program or they had started the program a few years before I started this thought process. And I said, this could be a good opportunity to augment some of the slower period, if you will, while I was working. So what drew me to it was an opportunity to augment, a, have a different experience. And coming from the East Coast, the Columbia degree was a real draw, marrying both Columbia and Berkeley, because these are two of you know my favorite hubs or my favorite places in the world, both the West Coast and the East Coast. So it was a real, it was a real good fit, and it proved out to be that. But that was the vision going into it. It's like this could be it matches with a lot of my elements. Yeah, and it seems like you ended up going into entrepreneurship entirely after business school. Were you thinking about entrepreneurship? Before going? Yeah, 100%. I was thinking about entrepreneurship, but I was somewhat petrified by it because like, I had a lot of friends who had similar tracks to me and then came up with these ideas and went off and they were off to the races. And so this whole notion of an idea just created a lot of stress. I was like, where is this idea going to come from? So I'm set on the wanting to go on the entrepreneurship route, but this whole idea piece caused a lot of stress. And so it was how the idea came about was through, I guess, a variety of, of pathways. At Haas, for sure, what Haas really enabled me to appreciate was some of the emotional, more emotional sides of leadership and running a business, right? Coming out of banking, coming out of restructuring, coming out of that path, I didn't have a lot of that exposure, mm -hmm. if you will. And as I kind of went through my business career, one of the things I noticed was lacking was there was no room for emotions, right? There was no room for emotions around a dialogue, around owning them around talking to them or around um, making the connection between an emotion and a business decision or emotions and success. There's none of that. And so I started to get the inklings that this could be a business. And when I was in Haas, I took Steve Blank's course and I eventually TA'd for him three years after. He was an absolute phenomenal teacher and mentor. And it really inspired me because in his class, he brought in, all he did was bring in founders and have them talk and tell their story. And there was not a story that I heard that wasn't like, that's what I want to do. And so upon graduation, I sold Replay TV to DirecTV, got an opportunity to work at DirecTV as well as at the private equity shop that had owned us. And it was that I felt that this is the time, if there's ever a time for me to start something, I started, it would be now. And I started what was the predecessor to this was Maestro Market, which is a expert network, then that was at the time, that was an idea of this notion of latent assets. If you think of like Airbnb, they take advantage of a latent asset, which are your rooms, right? Right. Access inventory. I was thinking that 
experts have latent assets, which is their time. You could read a New York Times report. I'd love to talk to that author. You could read a book on parenting. My wife and I would love to talk to that individual. There's all sorts of examples. I'm about to go on a trip, a World War II trip throughout Europe. Wouldn't it be great to have a professor who could talk to us about that? And so we had lined up deals with all the major publishers in New York or in the world to get the supply, if you will. And we we're building out the demand. And we had to pick a vertical. And the vertical that I wanted to pick at that time was, was in and around spirituality. But it was basically, I didn't have the words for what I'm doing today. So I would use words like spirituality, maybe self-help. I was probably using that word back then, but I didn't have a, a like, A, I didn't have a confidence, nor did I have a vocabulary in kind of standing for the direction that I wanted to take the business in. And through a series of twists and turns, that business did not work out. And that for me was very traumatic, very stressful. And at that point in time, it was another juncture, which was, okay, you had this idea, right? Around emotions and business and spirituality and all sorts of things. But what does that mean business-wise? You know, on a Friday, on a Friday, I realized that I was no longer going to, I was let go effectively of Maestro Market. And that was, again, traumatic. And so on Monday, I had to let people go. And that was the start of the journey, if you will, for what this new company would be. I am human. And I built out I am human initially. And it took many years for me to get my own voice in it, to understand, ultimately to get confidence that after a traditional background that I had business-wise, that I could actually be just as successful and quote unquote, a non-traditional, what looks very traditional now was not 10 years ago. Trying to build a business around emotional well-being was not something that was mainstream, nor is talking about mental health as it relates to business. None of that was kind of in the dialogue. And so the benefits of that was that really forced me to come up with my own words. Cause you know, like if you were to read an article and you have an idea similar to that, it's like that validates you and you can take snippets of that to make you sound better. But if there's nothing of that there, you really have to hone in. And I had a lot of support in that hone in. I had support from my family, my friends. Yeah, I'll never forget this. I was building this. Like I didn't have any clue what I was doing, but I knew inside where I was going. And so people would say, how are you doing? What are you doing? And I just didn't have, I couldn't really articulate it in a confident way, which doesn't make your loved ones feel that confident, right. you know, in what you're doing, but they still supported me throughout. I had a great advisor. Uh, she helped me through it really in terms of getting my voice, getting the name and like how to articulate it. And yeah, and it was originally built off on, as a product in a traditional Silicon Valley way. I wanted to go down to building a product and I started knocking on doors for companies and they said, Ultimately, what they were saying was, we have all these products in and around emotional well-being or mental health, or we get inundated, but we need someone like you who can actually help us help navigate this and help us expand our culture in a direction that supports the mental health, emotional well-being, spiritual well-being of our employees. And I think the reason they asked me that was because I had the business background. So I understood the, the language of business. I understood the flows of day-to-day -day business with a deep kind of understanding passion and what I'll call layman's expertise around mental, emotional, and spiritual being. And that, and the reason I underscore layman's is because what I realized is you, or what became apparent, and I had a lot of insecurities around this at the beginning, I don't as much now, was that they weren't looking for a therapist or a PhD to come in because that can be a little off-putting initially. You almost want to be someone who's a little bit more neutral which helps create some safety. It's like, oh, that person's just like me. Okay, like they're not coming in with any agenda. They're truly just coming in 
to help us navigate this path. And then I could backfill it with that expertise, like a PhD or a therapist, or there's thousands of people that we plug into companies because we've already created the comfort and the trust. Because these are, think of yourself when you're going through an emotional experience, that's a vulnerable time, right? And there, it's, it's hard to talk about it. It can be hard to, you know, motion it through. That just gets compounded when you think of an organization like a company yeah. with all of the other structures that are in place that kind of have to be unwound for this. Right. No, that's, that sounds amazing. I think for our listeners, uh, if you don't mind sharing a little bit more about I Am Human and what it is that you guys do with organizations. So what we are, and we're positioning ourselves as a trusted advisor for organizations that are at a point where they want to grow their culture to be more supportive of the mental, emotional, and spiritual being of their employees. And what that entails is it's really boils down to culture transformation uh, and culture growth. And it's different for each company. So we work with law firms. We work with the NYPD. We work with schools supporting teachers. We work with LinkedIn supporting their executives. So in each instance, they're very different because those are different environments. But what we found that are some of the elements that make these projects successful is that though it usually boils down to having leadership support, like senior leadership support, and also an appreciation that it's a journey. So in other words, it's not linear. It's not say we're going to do ABC and then things are magically going to change. It could be multi-year projects, which in all instances they have been. Most of the companies that have brought us on, we're still working with. And the way our listeners, the way you want to think about it is most organizations have legal guidance. They have a legal partner. They have a tax guidance, tax partner. And increasingly, they're going to have what I'll call human sustainability or human capital partners to help guide them on the growth of their business. So if you think about some of our projects pre-COVID, all of a sudden COVID happened. And so what does that support look like? What does the culture need to look like? Now we're coming out of COVID and return to work. And there's still a little bit of not a lot of clarity around what that's going to look like. But all the while, you know, how do you make your employees feel heard, feel supported, feel valued? through that. And so that's what we provide guidance on. And, and ultimately, there's an internal element to it, meaning making sure the culture is supportive. And then there's an external element to it, because there's a lot of companies that are pioneers in their fields. So for example, one of our clients is O'Melveny & Myers, which is a top global law firms, have done a tremendous job internally in terms of building their culture, which we help them do. And now they're at a point where they could serve as a beacon of hope, if you will. So, wow, if we can do this in the legal industry and we can do it to the extent that we have, so can others. So we're starting to help them message that and take that out to serve as a resource for other people. Right. It sounds like, it seems like it's really stage agnostic as to what stage a business is in, because it sounds like you consult with organizations that are very mature and potentially startups as well, I presume. I mean, when do organizations realize they need to do this typically? Oh, that's a great question. So certainly there's different drivers in different industries. So for example, like the NYPD, for example, that what was driving that at the time when we got brought in was the increasing rates of suicides of officers taking their lives. So the driver in that industry was an awareness that there were mental health and emotional well-being burdens that were leading to very negative outcomes. So that was the impetus there. In the legal industry, the American Bar Association came out with a report that said in the legal industry, the amount 
the rates of substance abuse and self-harm were far higher than in other industries. So they went on to create the ABA Wellbeing Pledge, which a lot of law firms signed on to, which demonstrated their commitment to the well-being of their employees. But once they signed on, what does that look like? Like, actually, how do we actually make that happen? So those are two examples of industry drivers, if you will. There are other companies that's more part of their DNA, right? It's, I would argue, LinkedIn fits into that bucket where they're very mature, Nothing necessarily industry driving, if you will, like nothing from a severity perspective. It was just part of their culture. And so when we started working with them, they were far farther along on the maturity scale, if you will, from what they were doing from an emotional well-being perspective. And they just wanted to take it to the next level. And so usually what that looks is most companies, to your point, it's stage agnostic, but there's usually a fairly similar flow so to say. You start these projects off from wherever that company is at in their own with their own programming. And it usually starts off more getting junior buy-in. Then you start to go up towards the senior leadership level to get their engagement and buy-in. And that's usually the flow that we've found. And usually it's the senior leadership that's the last to demonstrate the engagement in this. And just to delineate, just to provide more clarity, so a lot of companies will say, well, we have a great EAP. That's an employee assistance program that we offer to our employees. And an EAP comprises, it has things like medical, things like dental, things like access to health, mental health care benefits. Maybe it has access to mental health apps, et cetera. But it's the EAP in and of itself is not gonna increase Sean's sense of belonging in his company. It's not gonna increase Sean's sense of support and nurturance. That's just a technology or that's just an offering. And there's a reason that the engagement rates on EAPs is between three and 5%. So if you think about a company of a hundred people, on average, three to five people are using the EAP. You have another 95 that walk through your door every day and what can you be doing for them? Things you can be doing for them are just making them feel like some of the emotional things that may be taxing them. Others are as well, i.e. you and I could be caring for elderly parents across the country. It's creating a lot of stress on us. We may be in a situation where we have a loved one who's going through an addiction period that's causing stress in our lives. We may be in a situation where we've had a health scare, right? right. Or we may be in a situation where we're in a relationship issue. All these things impact how we engage with our work, how we engage with each other, how we engage from a creative perspective, from an innovative perspective. And so there's all this unlocked potential that just with some tweaks of the dial, this is when I was working as an executive in companies. I was like, wow, if we can just turn a couple of these dials, it's going to be have a far greater impact than if I were to give raises, yeah, give more time off give more promotions. That can only go so far. And I innately knew that as a leader of a company. And so that's ultimately why I got into this work. So what we do is we help unlock that feeling of, and we've had this happen so many times where through our work, managers will change their behavior, right? Just the way collaboration occurs will shift. Just the way idea generation and kind of the expression of vulnerability changes to the point where people will say, I have a lot more, feel a lot more loyalty for that organization. Feel a lot more like a lot of the work we do helps them with their own kind of personal growth, their own emotional growth. And we've had people come up saying a lot of the work that you did, i.e. the company did help me better engage with my family at home, helped us have conversations that were waiting to be happened. And I never thought that the company 
would have supported me through that. Now my loyalty for you is that much higher. Yeah, and you didn't yeah. give a raise. Yeah. And it's not that hard to understand. It's like, well, if we spend over three quarters of our time at the office and we that doesn't mean our emotional, what we call our life moments, doesn't mean our life moments have lightened up or, or diminished. There's somehow a company can play a role in supporting people through their own life moment. And what we find is that generally life moments are human. We're all human. So if I went through a situation where I was caring for an elder and maybe now I'm beyond that, you are now going through it. I already have some wisdom within the company that I can probably help you. And then all of a sudden, Sean, you're like, wow, Ian, through the work that the organization's doing, creating all these different communities, creating all these different opportunities for support and help, I developed a relationship with Ian, my colleague, not through work, but through more of a personal situation. I may go to bat for him. Or I, I may, you know, put a little extra time in. We've literally had this happen where people say nine to five jobs. Now I settled on five fifteen because that extra fifteen minutes is it's I, I want to give it back. Yeah, type of thing. One of the interesting things um, that I notice is as a podcast host, I have to build trust right with the guests, and how I do that is just by being a good listener, by listening very intently. I'm curious, how do you think about trust? In your work. It's interesting that you said listening. I think listening is a very underrated leadership skill set. It's an underrated skill set in general. And one of the things that we found, especially in organizations, is that there's a bit of a fear that when someone were to share something, that there's a need to solve it or to fix it. And maybe it's not the organization's role to be doing that, or like what, you know, how far do we go in this support? When more often than not, the listening, most people just want to be heard. Yeah. So more yeah. often than not. Ian will share what he's going through to Sean, who is his colleague or friend or leader. I think about the amount of times you've had a discussion with a friend. Who do you generally lean to? It's the one who listens the most, the one who creates. And the listening creates the comfort, creates the trust. And so within organizations, what we're finding is more often than not, to the extent we together can create those spaces where there's just listening occurs. Nobody listens nowadays. It's like where you can create that listening, that allows people to get it off their chest and to sh and or to share it in a way, and we were talking about this in a way that's cathartic, maybe in a, in a way that they have not done before. And usually once that's done, it's about 80% of the way solved, so to say. Yeah. It's 80% of the way there. And listening is actually not that hard. And you will find more often than not that it was the real solution that someone was looking for was just to be heard. Yeah. Typically... It sounded like, depending on the organization you work with, different levels of people need buy-in, right? Who typically brings you into the organization? I'm just curious. Like, how do you get introduced to an organization that needs help? And if you don't also don't mind sharing, what's some initial work that you do just to get a better idea for people? Yeah. So usually who brings us in is a sponsor. And in a perfect world, that sponsor is the CEO. But that's not often the case. That could be maybe a GM of a particular division. It could be maybe, let's just say it's an engineering department and a senior engineer understands that his or her team of 100 is struggling. It's usually someone with a reasonable amount of power and an understanding that there's either burnout in the team or the team is just not as performing as well as it could be and or they're seeing a competitor do this. It's like, wow, this is something we want to do. So the two things that we need to get going is some level of leadership, seniority. doesn't have to be a CEO. could be a division, could be a manager, could be an office leader, as well as just an appreciation for the benefits 
that pursuing a culture exercise around trying to support employees more mentally, emotionally, and spiritually would be a worthwhile endeavor. That's usually kind of the starting point. And then from there, how it starts is we generally like to start off from a, like in a pilot kind of mode, so to say, because these are massive projects and it's not something where we just step in and all of a sudden every <laughs> employee has been reached. Right. We usually try and get a sense of, okay, within the organization, which group are the culture leaders or, or who do other like groups want to be like? Who do they take their cues from? And it could just be 20, 15 to 20 people. So what we'll generally start with doing, our first part is just to start to increase awareness and appreciation within the company from employees as to, okay, why should I even be attending this? Like, why does this matter? And why is my company doing this? Because there's going to be skepticism. There's going to be a little bit of resistance. So we're just trying to get that first pilot group from a kind of a, what I'll call a resistance phase into more of a curiosity phase. Oh, tell me a little bit more. So that's the first piece to call that call that awareness building. And then there's trust because there's there can be a level of distrust with respect to the organization's sincerity right. behind these programs. Is it just a checkbox or are they really behind this? So the next piece is we're really trying to bolster trust. And we, we are kind of the, the company's advocate, neutral advocate, albeit, but an advocate. And then we, from there, we want to get to a place of a bit of vulnerability, meaning Let's start to create spaces where we can't really start to restructure the culture unless we know like in, to, in what direction or what's needed. So we start to create spaces where people can share their life moments, right? What are they going through? And those life moments don't have to be severe. It could just be, I'm in a rut in my career right now. And it's, I don't know where to go, or I'm having second thoughts about a particular decision I made to something a little bit bigger. My daughter is in addiction or my daughter's causing a lot of self-harm and that's weighing on me. So what we do is we start to build an emotional map for the organization. So if you can imagine walking into an organization, your organization, where there was a digital screen that had all the different life moments that people were going through, and we've done this, people automatically start to feel more okay with the life moment that they're going through. Because right. countless times I'll go through a life moment, I'll be like, I'm the only one, there's something wrong with me for feeling bummed out about this, or why am I getting this anxiety, or why is my head like just running on a hamster wheel when I woke up in the morning? And generally just knowing that there's other people, it creates relatability. And from a neuroscience perspective, relatability starts to calm the mind down. And to the extent we can do that within companies where, okay, there's a lot of my colleagues and we don't even have to attach names to it. A lot of my colleagues are going through that as well. So this is a human environment. And actually a lot of those colleagues are our leaders and those leaders are going through, wow, the same thing that I'm going through. So that's the first stage. And then we'll start to boil down what are the more, what I'll call tangible, maybe more significant, maybe more prevalent life moments and start to design support around that. And that support could be shining a much brighter light on that EAP that I talked about earlier. It's all, oh, wait a minute, we have stuff in the EAP. I didn't even know we had an EAP. Great. And it's more targeted. So you're starting to get better leverage out of those dollars you spent. Yeah. We're also starting to build, we start to create community. So in within co companies, you have what's known as employee resource groups, ERGs. You want to think of those as it could be a veterans group. Could be an LGBTQ group. It could be all sorts of different groups. The next iteration that we create are the life moment groups, right? So those are the emotional groups, i.e., like back to caring for an elderly parent, or maybe a widow group, or maybe parents of children who are struggling with X, Y, Z. And within that's a whole new source of community 
that probably also have resources on their own. So we start to create the structure and the framework for them to self-aggregate and start to support one another. And then that's the base layer. And then we start to expand those programs out where we're really starting to track, okay, what's the benefit of these programs? Like, how is this impacting our P&L? How is this impacting engagement? How is it impacting healthcare cost claims? And where this whole market is going is that the SEC and other reporting markets or report regulatory agencies like in Europe, in Asia, they're starting to develop metrics with which publicly traded companies are going to report against. So much like as a company, you report against your organization's commitment to the environment, the environmental sustainability. In the not too distant future, companies will be reporting against their commitment to human sustainability. And that's back to the ABA pledge that I mentioned earlier. So the ABA pledge was put in for all legal entities to sign on if they see fit. That's a beginning of what I will call a regulatory standard. But then once that's done, then what? And really the, the kind of the, what's happening now is with the demographics of employees changing in organizations, right now millennials make up the majority of the workforce and that's gonna start to shift with younger generations. The younger generation, is expecting this. So they're expecting these environments to have those types of support mechanisms in place because yeah. they're coming out of environments like college environments where that was already the case. So they don't want to have to get into environments where they have almost have to relitigate and start to pound the table and say, we need this, we want this, how come you don't know this? And so we hope to be, for many of our listeners, if you're CEOs or leaders out there where you're trying to, if you're thinking about exploring, how can I grow my culture in this way? We would love to be a resource for that. That's amazing. We, especially at Haas, we talk a lot about ESG, environmental, social, and governance, and how these are some of the these new metrics or new markers for companies to measure themselves against. I think we've definitely talked about mental health <laughs> on this podcast before, but I think this is the first time talking to someone who's actually working on something that's so beyond offering a resource, but actually creating frameworks around how to make this successful in a company. Um, yeah, exactly. It's not just a resource of which resources are quite valuable, but resources, you know, the thing about resources, A, you have to know the resource exists. You have to be in a situation where you actually need the resource and you have to know how to engage with it versus what can we do every time an individual engages with the company? Like, how does that person feel? So that's beyond a resource. And for me personally, everyone goes through their own journey on this and a company is no different. And so for, for me, the journey was, there was just an appreciation that I take care of myself physically as best I can, take, try and take care of myself nutritionally as best I can. Yeah. And mentally, emotionally, spiritually, I've not always been in a place where I even acknowledged, let alone set aside time for Same. that care. Right. And it took me a real long time to realize as a human, as a human, fundamentally, like as a human being, you know, I have physical needs, nutritional needs, and I have mental, emotional, spiritual need, well-being needs. And, and they're all really of equal importance, right? And, you know, how you engage with care differs by day, but the, the realities are you, they're all of equal importance. And, and it's the same thing from a company's perspective. So that took Ian years to not only appreciate, but also change Ian's lifestyle to incorporate. That's not like an overnighter, right. if you will. And so companies, a lot of companies have great physical support with respect to mental, de medical, dental, vision, et cetera. They've got great nutritional support because there was a time, if you think back in the 90s when I was working on Wall Street, if I had a salad 
on my desk, people legitimately would have thought I was not feeling well. Right. Back then we were eating pastas, we were eating burgers, we were, you know, we were eating Rubens. And if I had said there was going to be three salad stores per block in Manhattan, people <laughs> would have just glazed over. There's not a chance. And we all know what happened with the nutritional kind of craze. And companies adopted that, bringing higher quality food options. But that took decades. And we're now at a point where the mental, emotional, spiritual piece, back to what we said earlier, they're all of equal importance. They all need equal care. Now, for companies are now starting to get that, we're 2022. But to actually bring that in, meaning not just have an app that nobody engages in or yoga, that's important, but that's not really what we're talking about. That's just going to take a lot of time to the point where as the CEO, as he or she is talking or the board of directors is talking or your leaders are talking, there's something in the language that articulates that support. And that's really the empathy, which there's a tremendous amount of literature on right now. It's in the caring. It's in, it's really, in, it's in the culture. So I think when people especially for our listeners, just recognizing that wherever you are in your company's maturity is a great spot. And then it's just an appetite to grow it and expand it. And, and COVID kind of catapulted that to a certain extent. Because before, it wasn't on people's radar for sure. And even the first six months of COVID, it wasn't on people's radar. Budgets were getting completely chopped, which they needed to. And then they realized the one piece we can't, like, if we don't support our employees through this, we will not be a business. Right. And so that was a, a very, as a huge catalyst. Yeah. And one more thing I want to add is that I think the earlier organizations can start doing this work, the better. And just share personally, something I've buried for a long time was just fatherhood. I became a father at the beginning of the pandemic. My son was born January of 2020. And it was just something that I just brushed under the rug and said, you know, I can still operate like I'm not a dad or I can still try to be this leader or this entrepreneur that doesn't need to really attend to my child because he's still an infant and problems will compound like that. I wish I had a fatherhood group to talk to or just a parenthood group to talk to or relate with because if I brush that under the rug, then something else might pop up later and I had a health concern. Now I have two things that I need to deal with. And then if a parent gets sick, now I have three things. And there's just so many things that build up. And after a while, you you don't even realize it, but you're just buried under mental exhaustion. <laughs> mental exhaustion. And it's most of this is psychosomatic in the sense that that generally can lead to physical ailments. So that mental stress doesn't just stay there in one kind of quadrant if you will, it'll start to impact. I mean, you can feel stress in your body. Like you just get tight, right? Or you just get kind of, you get tense. And that's a physical manifestation of something that's emotional. Right. And if that is ongoing, that will lodge itself in the body in varying forms. And to your point, other companies can do this early on. One of the things we've been starting to do as well is we're starting to open up dialogues with investors, VCs and people who are writing big checks to companies. And there is, and this is like, how do you support the asset through that? And so you're already starting to see VCs start to build out those competencies, much like a VC would build out competencies to, we can really help you hire the best people. We can help you with all sorts of different contract negotiations. We've got team on staff to do that. We've got BD team. If you're trying to get into a new market segment, we can really help you get into that segment. I think it's only another logical competency you know, for VCs to say, we've got an ability to help you grow your culture in a way that serves is right for you guys. We're not here to tell you which way that is. We're just here to at least help you appreciate and trust that could be beneficial. Yeah. 
That's really exciting to hear that you're doing this. I just want to share it for anyone listening. Please go check out the website. It's uh, i-m-human.com. And there's one, there was one statement on here. You have a bunch of statement about life moments. And one of them is, I'm living my ideal life and I've never been more stressed out. And I just, I couldn't, it's like that really stuck out to me and, and it just made me um, giggle a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And, and that creation, we we're trying to, I was trying to figure out like, what, okay, how am I going to engage with mental health or emotional well-being? In other words, you could proscriptively say, okay, I know it makes sense to meditate and I know it makes sense to take time out, but that's not going to be necessarily the avenue with which I'm going to do that. If I'm stressed out day in and day out because I'm living my ideal life and I just, I'm not feeling good. That's a life moment that like, I'm going to try, I'll probably want to be more inclined to take care of myself. And, or I wake up every morning and my head is absolutely spinning because of X. That would be the impetus, if you will, to start to support yourself. So, so the life moments is something that's relatable. It's something that it's almost irrefutable. We all have a life moment. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. And so that we think of that gateway in, the path in to supporting, that's the route we create. What's ahead for I Am Human and, and what you're doing, Ian? Where are you at with your growth? Right now, we're at a point where we're expanding our client base. So if there are Hasis and or not Hasis who are listening, who would like to explore what working with us could look like and some of the benefits, please feel free to reach out. Sean shared earlier, but my email is ian at i-m-human.com. We are also in the point or at the point of building out our team. And so we're looking for content managers. We're looking for project managers. We're also looking for client relationship managers. And or if this is something that um, you're interested in and you don't fall into those particular buckets, that's okay. Feel free to reach out. And I also do a, a tremendous amount of speaking, both for-profit and, and not-for-profit, because one of the things I enjoy doing is just sharing my story with the hopes of sparking some curiosity in the audience. And there's two types of curiosity we spark. There's one from a business perspective, but also one just from a consumer perspective. And we're not selling anything from a consumer perspective, but I get a lot of people reaching out to me who are on their own journeys that I can serve as a support system, even just the words. And that is what I found. You know, if I had to be honest with you, like when I was at Haas, there were a lot of words that I heard from people speaking that was very inspirational for me, very directional forming for me. And so if there are opportunities out there that I can support you or meet those needs from a speaking perspective, please feel free to reach out. And then lastly, I, what I found is I do a tremendous amount of kind of research and reading and writing on this space. And I've started to put together, you know, a newsletter with the primary purpose of increasing curiosity, appreciation, awareness around this space. And the newsletter is an, it's usually an aggregation of five things that I was drawn to could be podcasts, could be quotes, could be articles, could be events that I attended. And I distill it in my own voice and kind of give little call outs of what I was drawn to. And that's been rewarding too, because it's, I think it's helped people expand their appreciation of this space. Yeah. So Ian, I'm an avid reader. One of the things I love to ask for guests is, are there any books that you recommend for our listeners? Well, yeah, there's one in particular. So appreciated the opportunity to do this podcast. And and what it was is, is an opportunity to share in long form my story. And a dear friend who's really supportive of me throughout my journey wrote a book called Win at Losing. His name is Sam Wyman, childhood friend. And he covered a chapter, has a chapter on me in it. And the, that process, kind of similar to this process, was really rewarding in the sense that 
And there was a series of interviews that we had together where I just shared kind of my story. And the whole theme of the book is how do you win at losing? And I had done a tremendous amount of losing, seemingly losing, going into a Maestro Mar or I'm Human Success. And it was so rewarding and on an honor to be featured in his book and something I'll never forget. So I would recommend Win at Losing by Sam Wyman. Yeah. That's amazing. Thank you again for all you do, Ian. And uh, it was a real pleasure having you on the podcast today. Sean, this is delightful. I appreciate it. I appreciate all that you do too. And um, thank you to the Berkeley and Haas community for being a major part of, of my journey. So thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears.